Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Imagine a world without signs. I mean, talk about your everyday, mundane sort of thing that's so easy to take for granted. But without signs, how would you know where you were going or how far away you were from your destination? Without signs, how would we know just the simple, everyday kinds of uh, information that we need to know, whether it be at the store, whether it be on the road, whether it be wherever it might be, we rely on signs. Signs give us vital information that we have to know, and signs point us to our destination. During this season of Lent, we're going to be talking about signs, and in particular, the signs of the Bible, to narrow it down even more, the signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. And these signs serve a very similar purpose to the signs in our everyday life. They provide us with the vital information that we need to know about who our Lord is. And they point us to his purpose, his aim for us. John lays it out for us at the end of his Gospel in words that are familiar to us from the liturgy. These things are written, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. All signs point to Christ. All the signs that Jesus does, whether they be miraculous or mundane, they're all pointing to his identity and to, work, to his work done on your behalf and mine. And so each week throughout the season of Lent, we're going to be looking more closely and unpacking these signs of our Lord Jesus. Different people number them differently, but we're going to be looking at eight different signs of Jesus from the Gospel of John. And tonight we start with the one that is identified in the reading itself as the first of his signs. And it seems a little bit strange. Now, it's a familiar story. You guys know it very well. Jesus is at the wedding banquet, a wedding banquet with some of his disciples, and mom is there too. And then something awful happens. They run out of booze. <gasps> Joking aside, though, this actually was a pretty serious cultural faux pas. It was expected that there was going to be wine provided at the banquet. In fact, sometimes these wedding feasts could go on for a week. So imagine the tab on that one, right? At any rate, Mary looks to Jesus and says to him, in effect, <clears throat> well, I mean, what good is it having a divine son if he can't do a parlor trick every once in a while? Am I right? Well, in any event, in any event it's Jesus' response here that I want to focus on and that is so arresting. Jesus doesn't simply oblige and say, sure, Ma, whatever you want. I'll do it right now. Nor does he straight up turn her down and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Instead, he says something more mysterious and I think more troubling. Woman, he says, what's this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. A couple of things. Getting a little bit of feedback there. A couple of things. First of all, what's up with this woman? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I bristle at it a little bit. This sounds kind of brusque, doesn't it? And I will grant you that there is a, a part of this response of Jesus to his mom that is distant and reserved, but it's for reasons that will become apparent as we go on. 
Suffice it to say that this was um, a formal way of addressing his mom, but it wasn't a disrespectful way. It's maybe tantamount to saying something like ma'am, okay? Which for some of you moms, you'd say, I would prefer ma'am, actually. But we know that this isn't a disrespectful or a thing or a slight to Mary. As we read throughout the gospel, Jesus addresses other women in simply this way, woman. The Samaritan woman at the well, Mary Magdalene. And in fact, Jesus will refer to Mary herself this way one other time in a very significant way when he's on the cross. He'll say, woman, behold your son. So I know that it kind of grates on our ears a little bit to hear him say that. But understand, this isn't a, dis, a disrespectful way for him to address Mary. Although it is somewhat of a distant and reserved way. That's the first thing. But the bigger thing is the other half of, of what Jesus says to Mary. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, What is that about? Is this kind of a, a Cinderella thing? At midnight, instead of his carriage turning into a pumpkin, the water's going to turn into wine. Mom, it's not time yet. Don't ask me to do this. No, there's more to it. In fact, this is a loaded term in John's gospel when he talks about Jesus' hour. For example, in John 12, Jesus is contemplating his fate and he prays to the Father. He says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And again, in John chapter 17, Jesus is, is staring down the barrel of Golgotha, so to speak. And again, he prays to the Father. He lifts up his, his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. See, Jesus' hour is nothing less than the hour of his suffering and his death. It's the hour of his passion. But then what does that have to do with him making some wine at this party? Why is it such a big deal for him to do this little favor for Mary and for the, for the folks at the wedding feast? Well, to get at that, I want to go back even further, a few hundred years before this wedding at Cana, to another story, not a story from the Bible, but a story from the ancient civilization, from the great epic of Homer, the Odyssey tells the story of Ulysses making his way back to his home in Ithaca. And I want to focus on one particular well-known scene. So Ulysses and his crew, they're making their way through the Mediterranean, and they're going past this infamous island. This island is known to have these creatures on it that have this, this vulture-like body and these grotesque human heads, but that sing a beautiful song. These creatures are known as the sirens. That's right, the sirens. They, have, they sing these beautiful hypnotizing songs, and they're so enchanting, in fact, that when sailors that are going past the island, when they hear the song, they cannot help themselves. Irresistibly, they are drawn to the island, and they end up wrecking their boats on the, the shores of the island, which is exactly what the sirens want to happen. Well, Ulysses, he already knows about this in advance, and so he hatches a plan. He says, okay, he directs all of his crew, you need to put some wax in your ears. If you don't have enough wax already in your ears, you need to add some more wax into your ears so that you won't be able to hear the song when we go past. Brilliant idea. But Ulysses, he wants to hear the song for himself. He's curious about these beautiful, enchanting melodies. 
And so he takes his plan one step further. He orders his crew to strap him to the mast of the ship so that he'll be able to hear those siren songs and yet not be drawn away because he knows that he's not above the temptation. If he himself was to hear the music, he would immediately, if he was in control of the ship, he would alter its course and you know, lead them right to a watery grave. And so he orders the crew, strap me to the mast. And in doing so, he knows that he won't alter his course. He won't succumb to the siren song. In this way, his destiny will be decided in advance. And sure enough, the plan works. They safely make their way past the rocky shores. And why do I tell you this story? Psychologists actually have a term. Modern psychologists have a term for this strategy that Ulysses employs here. And the term, they call it a commitment device. A commitment device. A commitment device is a decision that you make in the present that forces your hand about the future. It's a decision that you make in the present or a system that you establish in the present that forces your hand for the future. So for example, Lent begins today. Perhaps for some of you, you've resolved to fast from sweets during the season. Now you could just rely on your um, good intentions and your willpower, or you could employ a commitment device and get all of the cookies and cake out of your house and maybe take it even one step further. You can tell your family, tell your friends, if you see me eating a cookie, then I owe you 20 bucks on the, stop, on the spot, okay? That would be a commitment device. Ulysses does a, a commitment device when he straps himself or has himself strapped to the mast. It ensures that he stays his course. In a sense, it seals your destiny. It forces the hand of the future in the present. Once you cross this bridge right now, there's no turning back. Okay, you with me so far? So then let's go back to the story of of Jesus and the wedding at Cana. Mary mentions that they've run out of wine and the implication to Jesus is clear. Do us a solid, Jesus, you know. Keep the party going here. What's the big deal? And Jesus responds with his enigmatic woman, it's not my hour. So what's going on here? Well, remember we said that Jesus' hour refers to the hour of what? His passion. The hour of his suffering and death. And so Jesus recognizes that this sign, if he does it, it will set into motion the events that will culminate in the hour of his suffering and his death. Our translation said that this was the first of his signs. But that doesn't quite capture the, the nuance of the Greek word. The Greek word is arche, which more properly means beginning. It's not simply that this sign is the first one in order. It's more that it's like this sign is the first domino to fall. And when it does, all of it is going to lead unavoidably, ineluctably to the cross. And so Jesus, with some due deference, double checks with mom here. Even though she couldn't possibly know the fullness of what this all means. It's as if he's saying to her, Mom, are you ready for me 
to walk this road. Because after this, there's no turning back. With this first sign, something as seemingly innocuous as as providing wine for a party, Jesus seals his fate. This is his commitment device, see. He is strapping himself to the mast. No listening to the siren songs that are going to come, and there would be plenty of them. You think of Satan speaking to Jesus and showing him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, you could take a shortcut around all of that suffering and death if you'll just, you know, bow down and worship me. Siren song. Or again, those sirens are singing when Peter, his own Peter, says to him, Lord, it will never be. You will never suffer. You will never die. Siren song. Or again, when Jesus is on the cross and all of those mockers are ridiculing him and reviling him and saying, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross and show us. Could he do it? He won't listen to those siren songs either because he is already lashed to the mast. The die is cast. And so this wine of Cana points forward to the blood of Calvary. That's where it's going from here. And this sign of Cana, it points to you and me too. Already you've come forward to receive this sign in ashes on your forehead. It's like your commitment device to the Lord. You will not hearken to the siren songs of this world. Lent is a season for repenting of the ways that we already have listened to those songs, those ones that we've succumbed to, the lies that we have believed, the lures that we have too easily taken in. You're going to wash off those ashes, but you will not wash off that sign. You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. You are marked. But you will also come forward still to receive these signs in bread and wine on your lips. See, these are not your commitment device to the Lord. This is his commitment device to you. You are strapped to the mast of his cross. You are tied to Lord Lord Jesus. His death is yours and so is his resurrection. His life for yours. And so the poet George Herbert wrote, Love is that liquor, sweet and most divine, which my God tastes as blood, but I as wine. You belong to Christ, and he will not turn his back on you. Indeed, he cannot. Amen. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to sing.